Hi, I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, and welcome to the Life, Death, and Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium. I know it seems like a strange combination, but that gives me a unique view of life and death. Death can be scary. I get that. That's why I'm doing this. I want to help people explore life, death, and what it all means. We are born and we die. What we do in the middle is the space between. In 1975, Dr. Raymond Moody coined the term near-death experience in his book, Life After Life. For a half a century, Dr. Moody has researched some of the greatest life mysteries. As both a PhD in philosophy and an MD, he has a strong interest in how medical realities intersect with the realm of philosophy. In his multiple roles as author, professor, public speaker, and grief counselor, he has heard thousands of accounts of near-death, shared death, and after-death experiences. It is my honor today to welcome Dr. Raymond Moody back to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast to talk today about shared death experiences. Welcome, Dr. Moody. Thank you, Amy. It's, so, it's delightful to be with you. Thank you so much. So in your book, Glimpses of Eternity, you coined the term shared death experience, which came after near-death experience. Can you explain how shared, first, can you explain what a shared death experience is, and then how a shared death experience proves even more evidence than a near-death experience that our consciousness survives or exists outside of our body? Yes, I think probably most people, unless you've been hanging out in the Himalayas for the last 40 years, probably know about near-death experiences, right? That people who come near death and are revived say that, tell us they leave their physical bodies, they can see their bodies down below, that they go through a passageway into a light, and they say that relatives or friends of theirs who have died seem to be there to greet them and to help them through this transition. And they have a panoramic memory in which everything they've ever done is displayed around them in this sort of hologram, which they witness from the point of view of the other participants in their lives and come back from this convinced that what we call death is just a transition into another reality. And most importantly, saying what they learned on the other side was Whatever we're chasing here, like fame or power or knowledge, as in my case, or money or whatever people chase, that they say what they learn in this life review is that what this is all about is learning to love. Mm -hmm. And that's what a near-death experience is. And as we all know, the classical argument about these, which, and I say classical meaning quite literally because it goes back to Democritus and Plato, who were the first people to have this argument in this form. Plato taking the near-death experiences as kind of a face value, saying they indicate an afterlife. But Democritus, who had figured out just from reasoning it out that matter is made up of little bits called atoms, looked at the same stories and he said, this is just the residual biological activity in the body. And um, 
That's what we say today, that it's oxygen deprivation, right? Well, the difficulty with that format of debate is that identically the same experience that we call the near-death experience occurs not just to people who are, have been close to death and revived, but it is also very common among people who are not themselves ill or injured, but who happen to be there at the death of someone else. And the kinds of things, there's a lot of different kinds of things people describe, but um, one of the things you hear is that people say that um, as their loved one in the bed is dying, that they, when their loved one dies, they may see something leave the body. I hear this a lot from doctors, you know, say that as they're dealing with a dying patient, they see something leave the body at, at death. Um, or sometimes the bystanders say that they themselves leave their physical bodies and rise up and go part way toward this light with their dying loved one. And then at a certain point, they come back and rejoin their bodies and their loved one goes on. Or people say that they see um, apparitions of the, apparently the dying person's deceased relatives and friends coming into the room. Or bystanders may say that the room fills with this beautiful light. A lot of people tell me that it's that in a way that they find hard to describe, that the room changes geometry, that they realize that people say that, I, I've, one thing I've heard recurrently is people say that they suddenly realize that they were seeing things in the room from an impossible angle. Like, the, so it's that, like a distorted shape. Yeah, like that, you know, the things in the room don't seem to be where they normally would be, that your, your perception on it is same some had changed around um and this is the most remarkable one and it's maybe this is the most uncomfortable thing i've learned about this whole thing is that i have plenty of cases where the bystander at the death of someone else empathically co-lived the dying life review of the person who passed away and uh it, it until just a few years ago, all the cases I had of it were from people who were close to the person who was dying. A couple of mothers in their 40s who had lost their teenage sons, and oh my God, just horrible stuff. And Or a woman in Carrollton, Georgia, who's had one of these stir-gay relationships where, you know, where the two people grow up next door, neighbors or whatever, and play when they're kids and then, and I found in my grief practice, Amy, that that's the most difficult pattern of grief to get much done on because when they've been married for 40 years like that, from just been raised from infancy together, this, you know, this one, one goes is. Well, that's the heartbreak uh, theory. Right? It is. And but this woman had had that relationship. She had known her husband all his life. They lived two houses from each other. And when he died, uh, she suddenly, but he had suddenly lung cancer diagnosed, just very quick. And she said that as he was dying, his whole life 
sprang up in a panorama. And she was able to talk with him about this as it was going on. And so, uh, and then, so for a long time, I thought, well, surely it's just somebody close to the person. Until a few years back, got a communication from a doctor who said he was called to the ER to resuscitate a patient he'd never laid eyes on. And he said, as he was resuscitating this guy, he said all these images came out. And he said he could tell it was the this guy's life. He, he was, and so what does this mean? Well, it certainly means that there is more to near-death experience than than oxygen deprivation to the brain. This is some entirely new category. But the trouble is we just don't have the um, conceptual tools to think about this. It's um, Well, and that seems to be such a struggle for people. I know when people ask me about what it's like to communicate with people who have passed, it's hard to conceptually put into words the experience of like clear knowing, right? Clear cognizance. It's hard to to put specific words to this is my exact experience because it's it's wordless. That's right. Ineffability. <clears throat> William James in the Varieties of Religious Experience says that very beautifully in his section on mysticism. He said that the very he said that the most uh, visible marker of what he calls a mystical experience is ineffability, and that is that no matter how articulate the person may be, how many languages they speak, how many degrees they have, they just always I just can't put it into words. Mm-hmm. That's probably the most common thing that people with near death experiences say is that. I get, you know, there just aren't any words for it. So why, I asked this about near-death experiences, and I know you talk about this a little in your book, but why do some people, again, experience a shared death experience, holding vigil or being with a loved one who passed, mm-hmm. while other people I just don't know. Out of their, uh, were out of our minds just having this conversation right now? That's right. Why some do and some don't. I've wondered about that for years. And so a lot of my colleagues who study these near-death experiences too, but I just, I don't know why some do and some don't. And it's not the things you would think. It's uh, Some people say, oh, this has got to be something to do with religion. But no, it's not. It, you know, it happens to people who had no contact with religion, who are just even hostile to religion that, you know, it doesn't seem to anything to do with prior religious background, if any. So it doesn't doesn't discriminate. The experience doesn't discriminate. It doesn't seem to, it really doesn't. It doesn't go by the, doesn't seem to have anything to do with the particular illness that brought the person close to death or, um, now, you never had a near-death experience, but you did have a shared-death experience. I did. Can you share that? Yeah, I had learned about these shared-death experiences from one of my own professors in medical school. And I began more or less to cat collect them. And I, in 1994, I was getting ready to do a book on this and to do some systematic research and it was on Mother's Day in 1994. And I was in Las Vegas with a bunch of people and we were setting up a study 
And then I called my mother um, to wish her happy Mother's Day. And I said, how are you doing? And she said in this cheerful way, she said, oh, I'm doing great. It's like a very chipper. And then she just said, and then but yesterday I developed a rash. And my brothers and sisters had taken her to the ER, I guess. And the doctor said, I don't think this is anything significant. You know, it's just it's some idiosyncratic reaction. So he, he gave a, an appointment for her to see another doctor on Monday. So when I talked to her on Sunday, Sunday, it was as though, you know, she was fine, just a rash. But when she went to the doctor next day, he said, uh, you have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and you have two days to two weeks to live. And yes, indeed, she did die two weeks later to the day. And my wife and I and my brother, two of my brothers-in-law and my two my sisters were there. And what can I say? It's just like I experienced this. I, my sister uh, felt the presence of my father who had died there some about a year and a half before. Um, I, um, I don't know how to describe it. I, the best way I can say is that if you can imagine that I found myself in an inner, not energy like we know here, but it was like um, the room became like a double funnel. And you see this light, but it doesn't, it's not like the light coming from the sun or from this room, but it's, uh, it's light all right. And uh, I heard my mother, not with my ears, but I heard her in my mind. And so it's the funniest thing happened to me. I, I, what motivates me is curiosity. And the fact that I'd had that experience myself, it made me sort of back off the subject for a while. And then I waited maybe about 10 years. And then I thought, well, it's time to, you know, to work on this again. But I, you know, having it myself, it sort of took away some of the motivation to, um, to see other pieces of that. Did your siblings also have a shared death experience? I know that my sister did, and when one of my brothers-in-law, that's right, did and my wife, what and you experienced, I. Or did they experience different? My sister apparently experienced the presence of my father, who had died 18 months before. So you and both had that experience. I didn't experience my dad. My sister oh. did. Oh, okay. But I just, uh, my focus was entirely on my mother and on the way the room changed. It was just, it was definitely not in three dimensions anymore. It was, it wasn't even a geometry that I recognized. And that light, the quality of the light was something totally different. And I wasn't hearing my mother's voice. I was experiencing my mother talking to me on the inside. I mean, I'm still, I, I, I'm explaining what happened, but I know, you know, it's, it sounds weird to me too, <laughs> you know, but I know what happened. I wish that there was more of a sense of, there might just be things that we have to have faith in and that we don't yeah. necessarily have, I mean, 
the answers to, although it seems like so many people have had this experience and their motivations for having it are pure. Like there, there really isn't a, I mean, there are people out there who are charlatans and who yes. are the fraud people, but you know, people who have genuinely had experiences, mystical experiences, these phenomenons are not necessarily looking to defraud people. They're looking to show no, no. experience. So you are currently w- working on a book called God is Bigger Than the Bible. Mm-hmm. Can you give, give us an overview of this book? Because I don't, can, I'm, I was raised Jewish. I'm mm-hmm. not particularly religious, but I have a sense of spirituality and faith. Yeah, but what happened was that when I started talking with all these people about near-death experiences, I began to have personal experiences with God. Um, And, well, this is one that came rather late, but it's it's one that really affected me very deeply. As like, um, I moved into an old grist mill in 1990, May of 1990, that had last been rewired in 1950. So I knew it needed rewiring, but I didn't have any money at that time. So three years and four months passed. And in September of 1993, my uh, wife said, well, we can get the money together now for rewiring the house, but we didn't know an electrician. So we held hands by our kitchen sink And we prayed that God would send us just the right electrician. The next morning, the phone rang. Cheryl picked up the phone and she said, hello. And a voice on the other end said, hello, this is B.R. Wilson. And Cheryl said, yes, B.R., what is it? And he said, well, your number just came up on my beeper. And Cheryl said, well, we haven't made any phone calls this morning, B.R., what's this all about? And he said, well, I'm an electrician. And she said, well, B.R., we do need an electrician. Come on over. Shortly thereafter, just looking around. So, and then to make a long story short, he went, he went out. Um, I, when he was going back to his van, I sat on the porch and my wife escorted him out to the van. And um, so Cheryl, uh, And he came back shortly thereafter. They were both looking kind of flustered. And uh, what had happened was as Cheryl was putting BR BR into his van, he said, well, it's going to be a few days before I can get out here to do this because I come from a very close family around here. We all love each other very much. He said, but my my 38-year-old brother had a drop dead of a heart attack the other day and my Mother had a heart attack on the way home from the funeral home. So Cheryl said, well, B.R., my husband might be able to help you with that. Like he, he has, um, he talks to people who've been through things like that. And B.R. said, well, my mother gave me this book called Life After Life to read. No and it's helping some. And B.R. is still our friend. This 26 years ago now, but he's still our friend. Then things like that. What I say is, um, so do you say that's like synchronous? I mean, some people say coincidence, right? Synchronicity, yeah. but it feels like more than that. It does. It does. 
just gradually I woke up through personal experiences to God. It wasn't through religion. And I've been writing this book now for about 10 years called God is Bigger Than the Bible. And um, it's, it's like just my reflections on God, 12 thoughts about God that I've had. People, I think, conceptually think of God. They think of like one person, in quotes, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word, right? Like at the helm of a ship making decisions. Like you yeah. to die today, you get to live. Um, and I've, I've heard people say like, how can there be a God when terrible things happen? But what have you found in your research about this? And what's your answer to that? Because your God in your mind and mine as well is not a one man show. That's right. Right. I mean, it's where I've come to it is I think Ellie Wiesel was right. He was before your time, but when I was oh, a kid. Oh, no, I've read. Oh, was it? No, okay. yeah. Okay, good. I remember he was in the 60s, you know, was when his heyday, I guess. And I read his stuff when I was a kid. And uh, Ellie said, God made man because he loves stories. <laughs> I think that's what this is narrow. What is this? What is your life? What is your personal identity except your story? Right? And I think it's like I often ask people, let's say that you contracted some terrible disease that requires you to be isolated on a desert island all by yourself for 10 years. Okay? And they could take you out there in a cargo plane with all the food and water and medicine you're going to need for 10 years. But there's enough in the room in the cargo hold for a DVD player. And let's say 2,000 DVDs. Now, I want to ask you in that scenario, would you choose all comedies? No, because... No, that's right. You wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, that's what everybody says. Right. And so then I say, would you choose some tragedies too? And they say, well, sure. And I say, when you were on that desert island all by yourself watching that tragedy, would you be crying? And they say, well, sure. And it's, I think life is something like that. It's like we, we, the information is blotted out. It, Plato said that when you come in here, you go through an event boundary. And an event boundary, as you probably know, it's like when you're in the living room and you think of something you want in the kitchen. So you go in the kitchen to get it. But as soon as you go through the door, forget what you came in there for, right? And Plato said it's kind of like that. And, and the reason we forget it is we can learn. It's, we To learn this thing we're going through, we need to focus on it. And if all the other stuff was in your mind, it'd be harder. And so that's what I think. It's, um, it's uh, when I, if in another state of existence, contemplating coming into this one, and knowing full well it's just the blinking of an eye, I would choose some distressing experiences so I could learn about them. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that when it happened in the actual event, I would be pleased by it. Right. When somebody asks me, Amy, it's like, do you believe that God exists? I say, absolutely not. Because, number one, I, Raymond Moody, am a very limited human being. 
And any belief that I could formulate about God is bound to be off base, right? Plus, as a logician, it would take me about an hour, but I could sit here and I could show you what it means to say that something exists, and I can show you the formula or like how you would symbolize that statement. But when it comes to God, I give up. So back to your Judaism, right? It's the idea of Judaism is you can't form a concept of God, right? And I, that's just perfectly obvious to me. What I say is I have a relationship with God, and, and I do. And, I, and it doesn't require me to have any sort of beliefs or it's just it's when you have a relationship with God, you do things and then things happen. It's, um, it's pretty amazing. When you have a relationship with God, you do things and then things happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's, one down. Yes, it's kind of like, uh, well, this thing with BR, for example. But I could give you many other examples of that. But yeah, and I have examples in my life of things like that. And it's, it's so... Those are moments that kind of take your breath away. They do. It seems it seems impossible that that this electrician would call you. That's right. Because I lived in that house for twenty years. Never before and ever afterward did anybody call up. It's like I'm an electrician. Last question, and then we have to wrap up. But how can we? cultivate those experiences happening for us more in our lives it might be noticing them you know i mean the most amazing things happen all the time but people don't necessarily notice them mm-hmm. you know and but i don't know what 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 brings it about i pray i pray and i do every morning and every evening and sometimes during the day but and in my prayers are very it's like i got it down to a just basically protection from my kids and grandson, right? So, but um, prayer helps. I mean, I just, and I don't mean any kind of formal thing. I just talk to God like I'm talking to some other person. But I, but I don't know. It's a, life is a quest. And um, you do, you see things at different stages. And um, I'm just, I Thank God all the time that I majored in philosophy. And I think one of the bad things that's happened in our society in the last 40 years is the abandonment of the classical mode of education. Mm-hmm. So for those who missed last week's episode, can you just tell us a bit more or tell us a bit about the University of Heaven and what exactly you're teaching there. Yes. I have really, I think this stuff is important, this whole thing about the near-death experiences and stuff. And I've seen this develop, and I see that I know you know too, Amy, that there are charlatans out there who will tell people anything they want to hear. And also Lisa Smart and I, my friend, have created an online educational portal called theuniversityofheaven.com. Go to it and look us up and see. And what we do is wait. We do really good programs with really good scholars and doctors and so on who've had near-death experiences or who've, who have studied them. And we're trying to make a really good 
reliable source of information on these really big topics. We've had, we've had a number of really amazing medical doctors and people who've had near-death experiences, who've studied them. And so just go to the site and look at all the programs we've done. We've, um, we're just having a really great time. But we have a source of information on near-death experiences and other spiritual experiences that we think is very reliable. Well, and I'm excited because I am partnering with you both. Oh, thank you for that. Little mini podcasts um, that are going to be featuring some of the people you're going to be having on your webinars. So if people want to hear a little appetizer for what's to come, stay tuned because I will be promoting many of your upcoming guests on my show. Thank you so much. And thank you again for today. Um, I really appreciate your time. And we are going to be doing one more podcast coming up on psychomantiums. So did I say that right? Psychomantiums. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So stay tuned. Um, that one is going to be in a few weeks. We're going to um, put that on closer to the time where you're going to be doing a webinar specifically about that. So thank you again for your time today. Thank you very much. We'll it's so nice. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you. It's so delightful to get to know you. I feel the same way. What a privilege. What a privilege. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Make sure you head on over to iTunes and subscribe to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. And while you are there, take some time to rate and review it. Snap a picture of your review and send it over to me on Instagram. You can follow me at Dr. Amy Robbins on both Instagram and Twitter. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter at DrAmyRobbins.com. Can't wait until next week on Life, Death, and the Space Between.